Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. We'll read through verse 40. And if you will, one more time, I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word, if you are able. Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only a handful of events that are recorded in all four, believe it or not. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as synoptic Gospels, meaning there's just a lot of similarity, a lot of synthesis between them. If you've read through the Gospels, I encourage you to do that if you've never done that. But John is kind of an oddball. He kind of is unique in his portrayal of Jesus. A lot of attention on the last week of Jesus' life, beginning in John 13. That's when Jesus was in the upper room. And and John 13 to the end, chapter 21, it's all about that. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four, there's only a handful of accounts that are recorded in all four. Does anybody know any of them? Let me see. A little trivia this morning. What's an account that's recorded in all four? Besides maybe what we're looking at today. Say it again. The crucifixion, bingo. That's in all of them. Anything else? There's only about 10-ish or so. Say it again. Yep, the the ministry of John, the baptism. Yep, anything else? Let's do one more. Third time's a charm. Say it again. Jesus' birth, not quite. It's not recorded in Mark. And John is a little iffy if you... So, anything else? Say it again. The prodigal son. That's only in Luke. That's a, that one's only in Luke. Yeah, so a couple of them, right, is the crucifixion, the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000, believe it or not, uh, the baptism ministry of John, and of course, the reason I'm kind of bringing this up is right here, our account today, Palm Sunday, the account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you have to wonder, at least myself, right, there's a lot of different important things in Scripture regarding Jesus. Arguably, one of them being the nativity, Jesus' entry into the world, the Christmas account, but that's only recorded in Matthew and Luke. So something so monumental, so big as Christmas, why is it only in two of the Gospels? Whereas Palm Sunday, the accounts of what we find here, is in all four. Why is it so important? What's so significant about this day that all four gospel writers decided to include it in their recounts of Jesus? Well, I was, 
I've heard this account my whole life. I grew up in the church, and as you know, Palm Sunday occurs the week before Easter Sunday, so it's kind of obligatory for a pastor to address or preach from this text in one of the Gospels. And part of me, just reflecting over it, I was wondering, what is the point of this? Why is it so important? Because you read it, and it's kind of basic to understand the movements of the story. We know Jesus borrowed the donkey. He rode into town. There's the palm branches. There's the shouting and the, you know, the joyful exclamations. But what's the significance of all of this? I believe in the text, we find this truth revealed to us, and it's this. In fulfillment of the scriptures, Jesus the King has come to bring us true peace. In fulfillment of the scriptures, Jesus the true King has come to bring us peace. And Jesus is the King here. We see it clearly in verses 38, or really in verse 38. It says, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Right, the king has come. He has come to bring peace, glory, and the highest peace in heaven. Blessed, praised be to this king. He has indeed come. Jesus is the true king. It's one thing for me to say that. Jesus is the true king. Because it could be akin, or if I were to say, and rightly so, right, Charles III is the newly coronated king of England. Right, that's just a statement. It's just a fact. But beneath that statement, I think a deeper question lies. Who is the king? And I'm not here, about, I'm not going to speak about the moral or immoral qualities of King Charles III. I'll let you do that on your own time. But who is the king? Who is the one who wears the crown? Who is the one who walks into the room as the king? This is important for you and I to understand. Jesus is the king, absolutely. It's clear from scripture. But who is this king? Who is Jesus who wears the crown. The Gospels unpack and reveal that answer to us chapter after chapter, but in this passage in particular, what we see is that our king is a king who is humble, and he is a king who is praiseworthy. Those are my two big points for you today. The king who has come is humble, and he is praiseworthy. So let's look at verses 28 to 35 to see that Jesus is the king who is humble. You see in the text, verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead of them, saying to them. So the situation, Jesus is about a few miles from the entrance to Jerusalem, from the heart of the city. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus began this trek to go to Jerusalem. And in the Gospel of Luke in particular, Jerusalem is mentioned 32 different times. So it plays a big part in the story of who Jesus is and why he came. And if you didn't know, Jerusalem, the the literal word Jerusalem, means city or foundation of peace. I kind of found that was a little interesting. For some reason, I'd never heard that. But Jerusalem, the city of peace, the king of peace, is about to enter in. And Jerusalem is significant because... That's where the crucifixion and resurrection happened. And as one commentator said, uh, this was to be the climax of his story, Jesus being in Jerusalem. This is the climax of his story, of his public career and of his vocation. Jesus spent much time announcing the kingdom, but that announcement could only come true 
if Jesus were to now embody the things he had been talking about. Jesus had talked about loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemies, praying and forgiving those who do wrong against you, serving the least of these. All of that is about to come in fruition, the clearest display of love ever revealed through his death and his resurrection. And before Jesus enters into the city, as verses 28 and 29 tell us, he stops outside the city, a, couple, a few miles outside of it, and sends two of his followers, we don't know who, we don't know them by name, but he sends two of them ahead to Bethphage to arrange transportation. And we know, many of you know, Jesus borrowed a donkey and rode into town. But there's three kind of fascinating things I want to point out about this little detail here. It's not little, it's, it's quite significant. So firstly, when Jesus humbly enters Jerusalem, he does so on a donkey. And this physically communicates a lot about the king who has come. In 1 Kings chapter 1, when Solomon was coronated, he likewise rode on a mule. And when you read that, 1 Kings chapter 1, if you want to read it later on, you'll see that there's just a time of peace. There's a transition, a peaceful power of transition, and overall, there's peace amongst the people. So Solomon rode on a donkey. So Jesus riding in on a donkey indicates that he has come lowly, humbly, gently to bring peace. He's come peacefully. It it communicates a lot. If there's a a little picture online that surfaced sometimes, and it has, I think, maybe 10 different animals on it, and it says something to to the effect of, if you were to go into battle, which one of these would you want to ride into battle with you? And there's different options, such as 10 gorillas or 10,000 rats and some, maybe 100 falcons or something. And, but none, on none of that, there's ever a donkey. Right? Do you want a donkey to ride into war with you? Right? And you understand that today. A donkey does not communicate a lot of power, a lot of might. It's just kind of, today, at least to me, it seems a little funny, right? A little donkey. It doesn't seem very daunting. And to the, back then, it was the same degree. The donkey was not a mighty war horse. Jesus came firstly in peace to bring us peace. As we read Revelation, we know Jesus next time is going to come back on a mighty, powerful horse to exact vengeance upon his enemies. But firstly, he comes to offer peace to all people. This is significant for you and I to understand. Secondly, about this encounter with the donkey, notice the adjectival phrase there. Look at verse 30. Jesus said, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Did you catch that little phrase right there? Which no one has ever ridden. If you read through this passage kind of just fastly, normal Bible study, you might miss that detail, but that communicates a lot. What's the big deal? Well, in the Old Testament, whenever you would offer an animal to the Lord as a sacrifice, you offer to him an animal without blemish, without defect, typically the firstborn animal, the best of the best, the one that was not given to you secondhand. I, I kind of jokingly mentioned earlier, if you want to get a, you know, a hymnal and give it to your mother, that would be a decent gift, right? But it's secondhand. It's not something that you earned, that you worked for, that you bought, that you purchased. 
And when it comes to God, we are called to give God our best, our first fruits, not secondhand leftover stuff. And when it comes here, this little detail, this nobody had ever ridden this donkey, or this was new, this was pristine, this was nice, and this was offered to the king. It was offered to the one who deserved it. One commentator said that this little detail further affirms Jesus' royal dignity. But thirdly, in Matthew 21, verses 4 to 5, this is the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew about this account. Matthew 21, verses 4 to 5. We are explicitly told another significant reason of what is going on here. It's Matthew 21, 4 to 5. This took place. Jesus getting the donkey, riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This isn't just some random animal. It's not just some random time. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy that was made about him centuries earlier. So this isn't just a random guy, random event. Oh, it just simultaneously happened to occur. No, Jesus is fulfilling the scripture. Paul talked about it in Romans 1, that the gospel that you and I sing about, the death, the resurrection, Jesus' life, the gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus had, or God Almighty, the Father, had architecturally planned this salvation at the beginning of time. And it's now coming to fruition. Now, if you will, I invite you to turn to Zechariah chapter 9 with me. I want to camp out here just for a bit. Because any time in the New Testament where the author quotes something from the Old Testament, it's helpful to read the surrounding verses, the surrounding chapters, the surrounding context, just to help you situate what is going on. How does this, how did that author, how does Luke fit in this into the account in Zechariah 9? How does that tie in? What's the surrounding context? So Zechariah 9.9, as you see, it's the verse. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But in chapters 8 to 10, the, the surrounding chapters, there is an overwhelming amount of hope, of promise, and of joy, and of peace in these chapters. I think it's quite beautiful. I'm just going to highlight a few excerpts for you. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 7 and verse 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Chapter 8, verse 23. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days... Ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Did you see that? Foreigners, Gentiles, pagans, people who do not follow Yahweh, who do not worship the true God. Jerusalem is going to be so blessed 
so prosperous, so abundant, that the surrounding nations, the surrounding people who speak different languages, would take hold, firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, we've heard that God is with you. We want to go. We want a part of that. We don't know fully what's going on, but we know we want a part of that. Text continues. Chapter 9, verse 8, right before the, the passage that was quoted. But I will encamp at my temple to guard, it, to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Verse 9, then verse 10, look what's right after that. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Look at verses 16 and 17 in chapter 9. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. All of this blessing, the peace, the protection, the deliverance, the abundance, the prosperity, all of that is going to be ushered in by the king who will come in verse 9, by the king who will come righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Dear church, the king we serve, the king who wears the crown, he is humble and he came not to wage war, but to peacefully offer us peace. Turn back to Luke now. Luke 19 We see, secondly, the king that we serve from verses 36 to 40. The king that we serve is praiseworthy. He is praiseworthy. The text says, as he went along, as Jesus went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. You might be wondering, what does that mean? I don't ever see that today. What, What is the significance of that? Well, it's simply a tangible, physical sign of honoring the king. Akin, so trying to think of a modern type of equivalent, if the president enters the room, what's typical protocol? You stand, right? doesn't communicate a lot per se. It's just standing. It's just a random stand, right? What's the big deal about that? Well, it communicates you're honoring the office, the person of the president. So when the king comes, To honor them, as one commentator said, this was the ancient way to welcome a king. It was a way of saying that Jesus was too worthy to ride on an ordinary road. He deserved a royal carpet. It's a physical, tangible way to honor the king. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, we see that when it comes to Jehu, one of the kings of Israel, When he became king, when the people had heard the news that he was anointed the king, verse 13 tells us they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So the people here, they honor Jesus by their deeds, by physically throwing their cloaks, their coats on the ground before him as he rides through. They honor him by deed, but also by word. And many of you know this next part, verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Right here in Luke, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the other accounts, we see that the word Hosanna was exclaimed, which means save us. We also see blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These were all phrases from Psalm 118, which I encourage you to read that one in your spare time, maybe today or this week, Psalm 118. And when the Jews would travel to Jerusalem for several of the different big festivals like Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would speak this to one another. It was a type of greeting to one another. Praise be to the king. Blessed is the king. Blessed is he who will come in the name of the Lord. But this greeting that they used for one another, they're now saying it to the one who has now come, whom they've been speaking about for centuries. And then look at also that next phrase, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that little phrase sound familiar to you? A little reminiscent of something? It's of the Christmas account. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, what do we see there? The angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This peace, this glory, is becoming more crystal clear. It's becoming more tangible. The, the experience of it is about to happen more so because Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem. Our king is praiseworthy. So much so, and look at the text also, verse 39 and 40. So much so that if the crowd were to keep quiet, as the Pharisees were trying to instruct Jesus to do, Jesus, you know, rebuke your disciples, silence them. He said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Isaiah 55 verse 12 tells us, You will go out in joy and be led forth in presence. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. All of creation testifies that Jesus is king. Nothing can prevent, nothing can hinder creation extolling Christ as king. So let's wrap all of this up. Church, especially in regards to Jesus is praiseworthy. A lot of our time we've spent in Luke, we're, we're barreling towards the end, all right? But all of the time we've spent in Luke, I encourage you, do not forget who it is that we're looking at. Jesus is not some mere historical figure for you to think about, to kind of entertain you on Sunday morning. He's not just somebody to analyze and to, to pick apart, you know, what did he say, what did he teach? Jesus is the king, and the king is to be praised. He is to be praised. He is to be honored. He is to be glorified. And he is to do so, we are to do that because he's the sovereign king. He's the sovereign authority, period. And because he is highly exalted above us, he deserves our praise. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what kind of good deeds he might have done against you, as king, we deserve to praise him. But it's not the end of the story for the God that we serve. That, that could be period, end of story, but we also serve the king because he's good. 
The king we serve isn't just powerful. He's not just the one in authority. He is the one who uses power. He is the one who uses authority to serve us, to bless us, to heal us, to save us. Psalm 150, verse 2. Beautiful verse. It says, praise him, praise the Lord for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. You see those two dimensions right there. Praise him because he is his surpassing greatness, but also praise him for his mighty acts of power, which he has done for you. And to praise God, it, it means so much more than just saying, praise the Lord. It's okay to say that. It's okay to sing that, praise the Lord, praise God. But just, that, that's kind of a command when you think about it. Praise God. For example, if you were to say, today's Mother's Day. If you were to say, praise Mother. How many of you have ever said that in your life? No. How do you praise mother? How do you praise your mother? You know, mother, thank you for being there for me. Thank you for, you know, being so loving and kind and patient with me, especially when I was young and foolish. That's how you praise your mother, how you honor, how you esteem your mother. Same with God. It's okay to praise. Say those words verbatim. But Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for X, Y, and Z. Thank you for being there for me. You praise him by word and deed. The last thing I'll, I'll end on is this. So, if today you recognize that Jesus is the king of your life, you will and you must honor him as such. You will and you must honor him as king. What did the crowd do when Jesus came? They didn't stand there stoically trying to be all reverent, saying to themselves, whispering, praise be to God, praise be to Jesus. No, they exclaimed loudly, publicly, with one another, to one another, to Jesus, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest, peace in heaven. So when you truly recognize that Jesus is king, you will publicly say it. Not necessarily saying you need to do some callback here at Hillsborough when I, you know, preach a good point and you have to say, praise the Lord. And I'm not saying that. What I am saying is you will speak well of him to others. Do you speak of Jesus to one another? Do you speak of who he is to one another? Do you speak of what he's done for you to one another? Are you bold? Are you proud to speak of him to the lost? to those who are hurting, to those who are confused, to those who are desperate for a need, a touch, a word of grace? Do you sing Sunday morning? Do you sing your heart out to God? That's a tangible way to publicly, with one another, to one another, for the Lord's glory, to declare your praise to him. If Jesus is truly the king of your life, you will praise him in word and deed. These are but a few little ways in which we can do that as his church today. I encourage you to do that. Praise your mother today, right? Honor her, esteem her, but be reminded to praise God. There must be tangible acts of both what you say and what you do in life. Let's pray, and then we'll close our time with the doxology.
Jesus, you are our king. We are your servants. You are good. And you show that goodness to us day after day by giving us life, by giving us breath, by surrounding us with the family, the friends, the the house, the cars, the, all the tiny little blessings you've given us. We thank you so much for them. But most of all, we give you thanks for coming into the world to save us. Thank you that you came in peace. Thank you that you love us so much that you endured the shame, you endured the suffering, that you humbly came. Thank you that you fulfilled the scriptures and that today we can now look back on the events of Palm Sunday with gratitude, with reminders that you are the righteous king who has come. And Jesus, for everyone here today, it is all of our need to worship you more, to glorify you more. Help us to be bold in our praise of you. Help us to speak of you to one another. Help us to glory in who you are and to be immersed in your word, which reveals to us who you are. Holy Spirit, apart from you, we are nothing, but we know that by your power, we can do all things for your glory and for the good of others. Help us today. Help us the rest of our lives. Commit these things to you, not asking for our will, but yours to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.